Good morning. You can all have a seat. Thank you all for making it in that blustery cold weather. I know those streets were icy, so I'm so glad you guys made it all here safely. So nice to see you all. And it was lovely to hear everyone's voices this morning in song and in prayer. Um, So if you are following along in your journal, we are on page 27. If you don't have a journal, we have them available at the back on our connection counter. You can grab one of those and they're free to you. So this series that we have been in during Epiphany, um, it has been tracking with the early encounters with Jesus in Mark's gospel. And as I was preparing for this teaching this week, I was thinking about this gospel text that Jared just so beautifully read for us. And I was thinking about how I really resonated with this idea of this fast-paced hurriedness that is happening in this early beginning of Jesus' ministry. I found that there was a certain resonance for me in, in some of the quickness, in some of the in some of the need and the urgency and the, and the quick moving parts of this ministry. Now, to be clear, I did not cast out any demons, and I also performed no healing miracles this week. So, I am not comparing myself to Jesus. I am simply saying I've had a busy week, and I am sure that many of you who are sitting here have also had very busy weeks. I am sure that many of you can relate. We are busy people. We have busy lives. We have a lot going on. And what I noticed was that there were consistently changing and unexpected demands on my attention this week. Now, part of the process of growing spiritually is learning to pay attention to these kinds of things. Things that we can easily just brush off, not think too much of taking the time to reflect on what is happening inside of us when we encounter unexpected, challenging moments. What I specifically wanted to make note of were the areas in which I was tempted to compromise in, not out of guilt, but just out of awareness. What subconsciously or consciously would I be willing to put out into the margins of my week. See, I started to notice that my temptation to shrink my prayer time in order to fit in all the other things was starting to be impacted. And I'm sure none of you can relate with that. I'm sure you all fit in your prayer just nicely throughout your weeks, and I'm the only one who's been struggling with that. But the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about this is that it isn't something that we should feel shame about. It isn't something that we need to feel guilt about. The beautiful thing is that by taking notice of these things, we can develop ways of being, practices that help us keep Jesus as the central part of our week. As we heard in the gospel reading this morning, Jesus himself had a deep need for prayer. It wasn't just something Jesus liked to do. It wasn't something that Jesus just had some extra time, so he thought he'd just throw it in there. That Jesus actually had a deep need for prayer, and we see that throughout his ministry. So if Jesus needed prayer, how much more so do I 
need prayer. I can tell you it's a lot. So just to orient ourselves in this story, so far Jesus has been baptized. He's been tested in the wilderness for 40 days. John is in jail. Jesus has announced that the kingdom of God has arrived, and he has called his first disciples to follow him. The first action of Jesus' public ministry in the book of Mark is driving out an impure spirit from a man in a synagogue, which we heard about last week. And now Jesus stands in the home of Simon and Andrew, where Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with fever. See, Mark is giving us this beautiful clue, this clue into the trajectory of God's kingdom, which seems to be meeting people in increasingly more intimate spaces, increasingly more intimate ways. Simon's mother-in-law lay sick with fever, and just the touch of Jesus' hand, he helps her up. I imagine that her family had tried all sorts of things to improve her condition. They likely had their own ways of tending to the sick passed down through their culture, family remedies and cures for the things that ail. But the condition of this woman is only changed by the presence and touch of Jesus. See, the difference that is made in this woman's life and the life of her family, which have been caring for her, the difference is made only by Jesus and his presence and his touch. And Jesus does this in unexpected ways, as will be typical practice for Jesus throughout the Gospels. He will continue to push the boundaries of what it means to bring wholeness. See, it's still Sabbath, So Jesus is operating outside of what is appropriate practices during Sabbath, because healing on the Sabbath is not allowed. And not only that, but he also touched this woman, who is considered to be unclean, therefore making him unclean. See, in the synagogue, Jesus spoke, and a man was restored to community. And now a woman is restored to her family through touch. See, Jesus is coming up close to others that many people would like to avoid. For Jesus, nobody is too unclean. Nobody is too outside the bounds. And Jesus seems also relatively uninterested in these accounts and others about asking questions regarding the condition of the afflicted. There is no, well, what did you do? Or any sort of hint of, yeah, but what didn't you do? There's no sense that Jesus is pausing to calculate how deserving a person is of their healing. No written contract on the conditions of their release from oppressive spirits. And also note that the mother-in-law See, she hasn't done anything to deserve her healing. Not that we know. Nothing to earn it. She hasn't confessed sins. She hasn't even agreed to follow Jesus. Jesus simply sees the need and responds. And her response in return? To get up and serve Jesus. 
So maybe that feels a little bit jarring when we first read it. I mean, this poor woman, she's clearly been quite ill, probably for some, quite, for some time now. And we may be tempted to read this in a really oppressive way. Because maybe we've been there. Maybe we've just been through it with some sort of sickness that has had us laid up in bed. And we are just struggling to get better. We're just creeping along. And and we're still feeling really weighed down by whatever it is that we have. And yet there are still the expectations and the responsibilities that force us back to the grind, perhaps, before we are ready. Which is the evidence of a culture that is ruled by a system that perceives us as humans as a means to an end. But that isn't what is happening here. See, what I think we're supposed to understand from this is that this woman is not serving from a place of burden, but out of a place of freedom. See, we're not given the impression that the last dregs of illness are still clinging to her. But we are offered a picture of complete restoration with this woman. And this is the difference of Jesus. This is the difference of a kingdom where there is good, sacred, and holy work which subverts the kind of dehumanizing work of the empire. See, she chooses to serve as her response to her encounter with Jesus. And we see many similar stories throughout the gospel as a model of how this relationship with Jesus and us goes. It's first Jesus and then our response. See, we never actually really move first. All is in response to which that which he has done, and that which he is doing. See, as this text continues, we are aware of many more afflicted with all kinds of diseases being brought to Jesus. It says that the entire town is at the doorstep. and They have brought the diseased, and they have brought people who are, have demons, who are being oppressed by demons. And we see Jesus as this one who has authority over all the natural and supernatural, that the coming of this new kingdom means that Jesus is going to confront all the sources of unwholeness. And I think when I sit with this story, there are many things that we can get from it. And one of the questions I think that is asked of us in this story is what do we do in the face of evil and suffering? See, when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days, it says that the angels attended him. The angels served Jesus in his suffering. And perhaps that is the model that happens earlier in this chapter for us to look to, to see how we can respond in the presence of evil that there just might be things for us to do. See, I think Mark is pointing us to something here within these texts where we see suffering and serving so closely linked together that we do not have to be helpless bystanders. 
Serving amidst suffering has long been the way of the church, since the beginning of the church. It's what the early church believed and practiced, and many churches, hopefully most churches, still practice today. Since the time of Jesus, people have gathered in holy spaces, like we see them gathering in the synagogue in homes. We gather in church in homes. We see people gathering in holy spaces and doing the things that make us followers of Jesus. We have taken care of the oppressed, the poor, the widow, the orphan, all in response to who Jesus is. See, just a couple of weeks ago, David talked about Jesus calling his first disciples. And when Jesus had come to the fishermen, they were casting their nets because they were fishermen, and that's what fishermen do. They were doing the things that make one a fisherman. And I think there's something similar happening here. Part of our continued journey with Jesus actually involves our response. We are part of a practice-based faith in response to what Jesus has done. Sure, we know Jesus in here, and Jesus knows us, but there are also things for us to do with worship and in thanks. We do things like come to the table. We take Eucharist like we will in just a few moments. We pray prayers. We sing songs. We recite creeds. John Swinton says in his book, Raging with Compassion, that the early Christians didn't, need, didn't seek to explain evil and suffering. Their response to the problem of evil and the existence of suffering was not to question God's goodness, love, and power, but rather to develop faithful forms of community with which the impact of evil and suffering could be absorbed, resisted, and transformed as they waited for Jesus' return. So for the early church, which I think points us through tradition, through practices, to our response today, which is that our role in the things that we do and the people that we are and the way that we are shaped by Jesus is to provide these spaces where people can come and have us interact with their suffering. And I think when we read these texts, if we are to try and locate where we think evil exists, both in the, the text from last week in the synagogue, and then also in the text from this week, I think when we look at those texts, we easily think that when we are encountering evil, it is in the man that is possessed by a demon. I think that we easily narrow our focus on all the people brought to the doorstep who have demon possession or, or oppressed by unclean spirits. But we perhaps misunderstand the insidiousness of evil when we overlook the fact that evil actually flourishes in both the deliberate and unintentional acts that interrupt wholeness from happening. See, when we refuse to respond, 
when we refuse to do the things that John Swinton was talking about there, when we refuse to pray, when we refuse to do the things that make us followers of Jesus, when we don't do the things of the church, when our daily lives have become absent of the things that Jesus has always called his church to do, and that which he modeled in his own practices, that is where evil can creep in, and that is where evil can take root. So after Jesus had spent the evening healing all the sick and the demon-possessed, he got up when it was still dark, and he found a solitary place to pray. The word that is used here for solitary is eremos, which is actually the same word that we see back in verse 12 for wilderness. These were meant to believe and to understand that these are the same two kinds of places, the solitary place and the wilderness. Similar things happen in this place. And the reason that that is significant is that it gives us a bit of an inside look into what the praying life is. Prayer is both intimacy with God and a place where we are faced with the wrestlings of our spirit. Andrew Arndt, in his book, Streams in the Wasteland, he talks all about this. It's a beautiful book. Um, And he says that, The place of solitude is actually the furnace of our transformation. He says, solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. Jesus himself entered into this furnace where he was tempted with the compulsions of the world to be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful. Solitude is the place of great struggle and great encounter, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. See, maybe that is why it seems as though there are forces that keep us away from prayer. Maybe it's not just in our imaginations. If prayer is really as important and as powerful as that, if it is really a place where we find freedom from false identity, where we will be nurtured and our hearts will grow in the likeness of Jesus, shaping us to be a Jesus people, then it probably isn't too surprising that there are forces that would like to keep us from it. There will always be distractions. I mean, and let me say this, there are good distractions. I'm not just talking about, you know, binging a Netflix show as a distraction, which, by the way, your Netflix shows are fine. I'm not saying anything against binging a good Netflix show. But what I'm saying is that we oftentimes, I think, kind of understand sort of those tedious, those those small distractions in our life, those things that we kind of enjoy for entertainment, and we think of just those when we're speaking of distractions, But also what we can include in that are the really good things that we find ourselves wrapped up doing. And it's not to say we shouldn't be doing those things, but do we pay attention 
as we're doing those things? Are, is there ever a time where we step away and really assess where it is Jesus is calling us to, if we've heard the voice of Jesus. Let me tell you this. I've had people say, well, that's easy for you. You're a pastor. And I get it. Part of my day, I do, I do get more space for this kind of stuff. But let me tell you, I still struggle with prayer. I still struggle to make time. I still find myself at times trying to push it away and do all the really good things I've got to do. So it's still work, it's still something that we all have to practice. Then we get in the end of the story here, as Jesus is centered in prayer, this prayer where he has gone from this really intense evening before where he has cast out demons and he has healed He has returned to the Father in prayer to refocus himself, to ground himself, to root himself in the love, the word of his Father. And Simon and his friends come racing in the room with the excitement from the night before still thick in the air. And they find Jesus in prayer and they say, everyone is looking for you. I mean, you can almost feel the excitement from from the disciples. Everyone is looking for you. And you think, what's going through their minds? I mean, what they've been waiting for is happening. This so exciting, so exhilarating. It's beyond what their wildest imaginations could have thought would happen. They want more. Everyone is waiting for you. Everyone is looking for you. We want more. And Jesus refuses to do that which is so easily within his reach, to be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful. And with all the excitement wrapped up in his disciples, he looks at them and says, let's go somewhere else. Let's go somewhere else? Did she not just see what happened? And you want us to leave? But Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. There is more suffering. There is more sickness. There is more evil, which has stolen beloved lives. And I think that perhaps some of us can relate to what the followers may be thinking. That there are these things that are good and exciting and we want to cling. And then sometimes Jesus calls us away from those things that are valued by the world and asks us to follow him out into the wilderness, to leave our clinging behind and to follow him. And he says, this is why I've come. This is why I've come. I haven't come for the applause of a crowd. I haven't come to be a sideshow. I have come to face evil, to face suffering, to face unwholeness in this world, and to bring God's kingdom there. 
And so we're all sometimes called into that solitude place, that wilderness place. And in our place of solitude and prayer, it's where our hearts are redirected to the things of Jesus. There are things that happen within the prayer life that I actually don't think are possible otherwise. It is a place that will challenge us. There will be parts of ourselves that we probably would rather not face. Sometimes it's boring, right? Sometimes nothing happens, or it seems like nothing happens. Sometimes it's joyous, and sometimes it's gritty. But we do not go into the wilderness as though it has never been traveled before. There are many who have traveled before us, and there is no place that we go that Jesus has not already been. No desert we enter that Jesus is not already waiting for us. So if Jesus needed solitude and prayer, how much more should we? In a moment, we are going to come to the table. And as we prepare to come forward for Eucharist, remember that it is Jesus. It's not us. It is Jesus that calls you to it. And it is Jesus that you meet there. We practice an embodied faith with things to touch, hear, taste, and do. And this is part of the beautiful history of the church and all those who came before us. So now Tori is going to lead us in the Eucharist. So as we turn our hearts toward the table, let us say this affirmation of our faith together. I believe and trust in God the Father Almighty. I believe and trust in Jesus Christ, his Son. I believe and trust in the Holy Spirit. I believe and trust in the three in one.